Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning. The Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to locate one of these Bibles nearby in the seats in front of you. Uh, Pastor Bob has been on vacation now for a couple weeks, and before he left, he had begun a series on 1 John, so I figured in his absence, I would preach a couple sermons on the gospel of John. Last week, we looked at John chapter 6, Jesus being the bread of life. This morning, we're going to look in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to begin our reading in verse 2 and go through verse 11. Again, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, and you can locate one of these Bibles in the seats in front of you. Our text can be found on page 521, 521 of these Bibles. But if you found your place, let's stand now for the reading of God's word, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2 and reading through verse 11. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Now you may have noticed these verses are found in part of a section that's likely bracketed off in your Bible. And the brackets are there because there are questions about the authenticity of this text. And there are several reasons for questions about the authenticity of this text. The most basic reason for questions has to do with the fact that the most reliable and earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament do not contain this passage at all. It's just simply not in the most reliable and earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. It's not addressed by the earliest commentaries written by the church fathers. They just don't treat it. The writing style is inconsistent with the rest of John's writing, both in the gospel and in his letters in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. It's actually stylistically more like Luke's writing than John's. And when this text does appear in the later manuscripts, it has a variety of placements. Sometimes it's here. Sometimes it's placed after verse 36 of John 7. Sometimes it's placed after verse 44 of John 7. Sometimes it's actually placed at the very end of John's gospel, so completely removed from all context. And sometimes it's actually found in Luke chapter 21. It's not even found in John, it's found in Luke. 
So with so many questions about its authenticity, why even include it? And perhaps furthermore, why preach on it? Well, given all of the questions about its authenticity, there are also reasons to believe that this is a genuine event in the ministry and the life of Jesus. There are reasons to believe that this is a genuine event. It's true it's not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, but it is very old. It dates back to the 3rd century, that'd be the 200s. It is included in the early Latin translation of the scriptures in the West, dating to the early 5th century. The story also includes odd details that are suggestive of an actual historical occurrence. I mean, it mentions things like the posture of Jesus, stooping down, standing up. Doesn't give really an explanation for those things. It talks about him writing on the ground, but doesn't tell us what he wrote. Just those odd details that are given that are suggestive of history. It's also consistent with what we know of Jesus' opponents throughout the Gospels, trying to test him. And it's consistent with the way Jesus is able to turn the tables on his opponents while upholding the law and at the same time extending grace to sinners. In fact, for all the questions we may have about the text, what is unquestioned, what we unquestionably have here is our compassionate Savior providing an authentic demonstration of the gospel, right? That's what we see here is an authentic demonstration of the gospel. What we have here is God's grace for the disgraced. That's what's presented in the text. And all of the contours of the gospel are here in this story. We have a person who's shamed by sin, who's condemned by the law, and rescued by grace. Shamed by sin, condemned by the law, and rescued by grace. That's the story we see here. That's the gospel story. That's our story. And so let's look at those three points together this morning, beginning with shamed by sin. And those are not my slides. That's my slide. Do we have the other ones? Am I going backwards? There we go. That's them. Okay, I was hitting the the backwards. So let's start with shamed by sin. Shame is a result of the fall. Shame is a result of sin. And so we all experience shame, but what exactly is Shame, where what we could say that shame results when the disgrace over something we did or something that was done to us or something associated with us is exposed. Shame has to do with disgrace and it has to do with disgrace exposed. Our disgrace is found out and we fear rejection as a result of it. So the exposure of our disgrace and the subsequent fear of rejection are key elements to understanding shame. I'm just gonna give you an example here to think about. Think about picking your nose. It's something that everyone in here has done, right? Everyone has done it, but we never wanna get caught doing it. We never wanna be exposed because we fear that people will think that we're gross, and that they'll disapprove of us some way or reject us. Those elements of exposure and fear of rejection. If you do get caught picking your nose, you're likely to be embarrassed, right? Especially the more stranger the person is, right? You're likely to be embarrassed. But there's a difference between embarrassment and shame. Embarrassment is related to shame, but embarrassment tends to occur when we get caught doing something that's common to almost everybody. Common kinds of things like, picking your nose, 
like tripping on a step in public, right? It kind of can embarrass you. Notice the, the exposure part of that. No one gets embarrassed if you trip on a step in your house. But if you trip over a step in public, it's kind of embarrassing, but every, everybody's had that happen to them. When your child throws a fit in the supermarket, that happens to every parent, but it's embarrassing. But that embarrassment is common, and the fear of rejection is much more mild and likely temporary. In fact, it may be more of a fear of disapproval. Shame is often deeper, and it feels more uniquely personal. It's deeper than embarrassment and feels more uniquely personal. People are usually more than embarrassed over things like noticeable differences in appearance. Shame over weight. Shame over height. Scars. These are things that are constantly exposed that can make us feel unacceptable and rejected. Things that can make us feel shame. And there are other things associated with us that can bring about shame. Things like poverty, Things like having to file for bankruptcy, one of the most common forms of shame in the Old Testament, barrenness. These are things associated with us that can bring shame because of disgrace that's attached to them. We can also experience shame, however, over something that was done to us, being sexually abused, being cheated on in a relationship, being verbally or physically abused, being neglected by parents, when those who are supposed to love and care for us seem to reject us, it can make us feel disgraced and it can bring about shame. Shame is also possible over something that we have done. Things that we did. It could be a violation of a cultural standard. It might be a violation of a family standard. It might be a violation of a personal standard. But there's disgrace that becomes exposed and it brings about shame. But true shame, true shame is ultimately before God for violations of his divine standard. Not a cultural standard, not a family standard, not a personal standard, but a divine standard. True shame is a violation of God's standard. And it's ultimately before God that we're exposed. Our sin is always exposed before the gaze of God, right? And so we feel true shame before God because of sin. It's sin that brings true shame. That doesn't mean it's the only time we feel shame, but true shame is always ultimately before God and it's sin that is the disgrace that brings about shame. And this is the case with the woman caught in adultery. She is shamed by the sin that she's committed and that's exposed. We read that she's caught in the act of adultery and then she's placed in the midst of the temple courtyard where Jesus is teaching. She's exposed in the midst of a bunch of religious people. It might be the hardest place to have disgrace exposed. And if she actually was caught in the act of adultery, we don't even know how many clothes she has on at this point. So she's exposed in her shame. And this woman would not be merely embarrassed. She would likely be experiencing shame. And all the typical ways we have of trying to deal with shame, hiding it, it's not available to her. She's not going to be able to hide it. So she's likely experiencing deep shame. But we say likely because like our guilt sensors, our shame sensors can be faulty. We can be guilty of actual wrongdoing and not feel guilty 
right? We can also feel guilty over things where there is no actual personal wrongdoing. And in a similar way, our shame sensors can be guilty. We can not feel shame over things that we should feel shame over before the Lord. And we can feel shame when we need not feel shame. Our sin doesn't always bring shame before God, does it? We don't always feel shame over sin. And we can also feel shame over things that aren't sin. Being really short, having scars, poverty. These things aren't sin. But people can feel shame over them. They're not sin. Adultery, however, is sin. This woman has true shame. And in our sinfulness, we bear true shame as well. And here's the thing. True shame brings rejection unless it's covered. Our shame is ultimately before God and it does deserve rejection. Remember, real shame is connected to sin and it does deserve rejection. And true shame leads to rejection unless it's covered. True guilt brings condemnation and punishment unless it's forgiven. And we all have both kinds of disgrace, shame and guilt. We're not only shamed by sin, but we are spiritual adulterers, as Eric reminded us in the confession and assurance in our shame, because we're condemned by sin, by the law, condemned by the law. So that's the second thing. Shame by sin, condemned by the law. Her condemnation under the Old Testament law is pointed out by the scribes and Pharisees who bring her before Jesus. In verse five, they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. They might be referencing Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 which says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, because Leviticus doesn't say anything about stoning as the method of execution, some people believe that the situation that we have before us is more accurately reflected in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. And there we read that if there is a betrothed virgin, in other words, likely a young engaged girl, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. So clear reference to stoning there. So some people believe that what we're dealing with here is a young engaged girl who was caught in the act of adultery with a man who is not her fiance. But we can't really be certain of that because it could be that the implied method of stoning in, in a case like Leviticus 20 verse 10 was stoning. So we can't be certain of that. What does appear very evident, however, is that the scribes and Pharisees are not actually interested in true justice. They're not really interested in the justice after all, of the law because after all, where's the man? He's also condemned by law in both passages. Where's the adulterer along with the adulteress? You really don't commit adultery by yourself. Where's the man? Was he bigger and stronger? than the scribes and the Pharisees and the women, so he was able to escape? Were they not really interested in bringing him before Jesus? Well, we know this, that they're not interested purely in justice because we're told explicitly that all this is done, according to verse six, to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're more interested in charges against him than they are the charges against this woman, which actually adds to her shame because she's just an object She's just a thing. She's just a pawn. She's just being used by them 
to test or to trap Jesus. She's been depersonalized. She's been objectified. And so not only does she experience the shame over something that she's done, she's experiencing shame over things done to her by others. She might also be experiencing the shame of the man who is absent. Apparently she was good enough to sleep with, but she's not good enough to protect if she's in danger. She's experiencing all this shame. And the scribes and the Pharisees use the law as a weapon. They're using the law as a weapon to manipulate and to destroy. The behavior is actually bearing a satanic kind of quality because the name Satan literally means accuser. Satan accuses to tear down, to bring down, to actually bring death. And that's what they're doing. They're accusing the woman and they're seeking to accuse Jesus by trapping him. But what exactly is the trap? What's the trap that Jesus faces here? Well, it would seem that Jesus has two options, right? He can advocate for the stoning of the woman. He can advocate for her death and thereby bring into question the gracious and compassionate nature of his ministry and of his kingdom, while at the same time, possibly being seen to challenge Roman authority who alone at that time had the power and authority to execute the death penalty. We read this later in John's Gospel. The reason the Jews bring Jesus before Pilate is because they can't put people to death according to their own law. So now if Jesus advocates for her death, the compassionate and gracious nature of the kingdom is drawn into question and Roman authority is drawn into question. His other option is to appear to oppose the clear stipulations of Mosaic law outlined in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Either way, he's in trouble. So what does he do? Well, initially, it appears he doesn't do anything. He stoops down, and he starts writing on the ground. Now, there has been endless speculation about what Jesus wrote on the ground on this occasion. Some of them are very intriguing, thought-provoking, but in the end, it's only speculation. The text doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. So anything we say would be mere speculation. The only thing we can say is that according to verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees keep on pressing. And so eventually Jesus stands up and he says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus actually opts for a third option. He actually had a third one that they didn't anticipate and we might not see that he's actually referring to another stipulation of the Mosaic law. Because according to capital punishment in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17.7 says, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. The hand of the witnesses are the ones who are to initiate the execution process. He's appealing to another stipulation of the Mosaic law. He does add, however, this part about being without sin. That's not in the Mosaic law, being without sin. We don't know why he does this, but I wonder if it's a subtle reference to the absence of the man. In other words, maybe Jesus' subtle way of saying, assuming none of you are the ones who committed adultery with her because the man should be here, assuming that none of you have committed adultery with her, you go ahead and carry out the execution of the sentence. And then he bends back down and starts writing in the ground again. That's a brilliant response. It's a brilliant response. And the woman probably is now waiting 
to have the first stone hit her in the elbow or the arm, the shoulder, or the head. But she waits in vain. There's no stone that gets thrown because we read that when they heard it, they went away one by one. Again, this interesting detail that gives off the scent of historical accuracy. One by one, beginning with the older ones. It doesn't explain why that happened. It just tells us that that's what happened. They went away one by one, beginning with the oldest. But in any event, why it happened, so much for the scribes and the Pharisees. They're gone. And then Jesus turns his attention away to the woman who is rescued by grace. It's just the woman with Jesus now. And listen, Jesus knows that the echo of condemning voices can remain lodged in the heart long after he has silenced them. Jesus knows that. The echo of condemning voices can remain lodged in our heart and in our head long after he has silenced them. I think most people in this room can attest to that. And so he confronts her with the reality that he's brought about. He makes her confront that. And he asks this question, woman, which by the way, is a respectful form of address. He calls his own mother this in John chapter two. Woman, he addresses her with dignity. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she has to acknowledge, no one, Lord. No one has condemned me. But she still bears disgrace. She still bears the disgrace of sin. She still is condemned by law. And though all the others have left, notice that there is still one who is without sin. There is one who is still qualified to cast the first stone of her execution. It's Jesus. He is without sin. And what does he do? He says, neither do I condemn you. How beautiful words to someone shamed by sin and condemned by the law. Neither do I condemn you. He could have, but he doesn't. He rescues by grace. He beholds the disgrace of her shame. And instead of rejecting her with compassion, he covers it with his grace. He beholds the disgrace of her condemnation and her guilt. And instead of condemning her, he pardons her with grace. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But remember that it takes more than just words for Jesus to cover her shame and pardon her guilt. It took more than just words to do that. Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you because he would later stand before his accusers and be condemned by them. He would later experience the disgrace of our shame. He would willingly incur the shame that we deserve in concentrated form, being stripped, spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, rejected by earth and by heaven in our place as our substitute. And he would take upon himself as our substitute the guilt of our sin and the condemnation by being crucified and drinking the cup of the Father's wrath, bearing the disgrace that our sins deserve. Disgrace receives grace through the cross and only at the cross. Our disgrace receives grace at the cross where Jesus covers our shame and pardons our guilt. 
But that grace that we receive doesn't simply rescue us in our sins. The grace of the Lord Jesus doesn't simply rescue us in our sins to remain in them. His grace rescues us from our sins to liberate us from them. Notice he says more to the woman in verse 11. He says, neither do I condemn you. He also says, go and from now on, sin no more. Without this verse, there'd be questions about whether this woman was actually caught in the act of adultery. But this seems to acknowledge that she was indeed. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. Grace doesn't condemn us, but it does call for change. It does call us to change, and it does transform us. Grace does empower us to change. Grace not only saves us from, grace saves us for. Grace saves us from disgrace and shame and condemnation and punishment, yes, but it also saves us for holiness and a life of obedience. John Piper is exactly right when he says, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. It is pardon, but not just pardon. Grace is power. But the order is crucial for the gospel. The order here is crucial for the gospel. It's not go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. That's not the order. The order is neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. It's not our transformation that somehow merits grace. It's grace that enables our transformation. So what about this woman? Did this woman embrace the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from her sin, and follow Jesus for salvation? I hope so. But the text doesn't tell us. John doesn't say what happens to the woman. And it would seem that he's more interested not in her response, but the reader's response. About your response and my response to the grace of the Lord Jesus. Have you embraced the grace of the Lord Jesus? Because we all need that grace. We are all disgraced sinners before God. We are all shamed by sin, condemned by the law, and in need of his rescuing grace. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden, exposed by our sin, shamed, liable to rejection and death because of our disobedience and trying to cover our shame with fig leaves. It's only inadequate because only God himself can cover our shame and pardon our guilt. And the way he does that is by giving us the sacrifice that he provides. Just as he sacrificed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve in their shame and their nakedness, it's his sacrifice alone that can cover our shame and pardon our guilt. And that sacrifice is his son, our savior, Jesus. Jesus is grace for the disgraced. That's where we find it. God's grace for the disgraced is found in Jesus. And perhaps this morning you're here and you need to hear him saying, neither do I condemn you for the disgrace in your life. Whether those are sins that you've committed or sins that have been committed against you. For the disgrace in your life, Jesus offers grace grace that covers and pardons and so you need not fear his rejection and you need not fear his condemnation and punishment turn to the lord jesus for grace 
But that grace he gives, remember, is never just rescuing you in your sins. It's a grace that rescues you from. Remember that turning to Jesus in faith always involves turning from sin in repentance. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you need to hear Jesus saying, go and from now on, sin no more. Are there sins in your life that you need to repent of? Turn to Jesus for empowering grace. Or you might be here this morning and you need to hear this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Do you use the law as a weapon, hammering people with shame and with guilt? Do you hold stones ready to hurl at anyone who frightens you or opposes or violates that which you hold dear? Eager to throw stones perhaps at the gay community, porn addicts, substance abusers, or perhaps in our climate we would need to include Republicans and Democrats ready to hurl stones. Listen, judging by news programs and social media posts, we live in a graceless age. People ready to condemn and expose. Are we who have received the Lord's grace through Christ, are we any different? Or is all we dispense condemnation and shame? Are we dispensers of grace, like soap dispensers, right? containers that are filled with grace, that aren't afraid of dirty hands? The dirt is why grace is needed, isn't it? Our hands are dirty, that's why we need grace. Are we dispensers of that grace? Not suggesting at all that we just gloss over people's sin. Jesus never does that. In fact, the reason that we use soap is to cleanse. The reason that we dispense grace is to be agents of his grace to change lives, not to just leave them alone. But perhaps we do need to think about what Philip Yancey wrote. I think he wrote this at least a decade ago, but it's worth considering today. He said, I share a deep concern for society. I'm struck, though, by the alternative power of mercy. Jesus never countenanced evil, but he did stand ready to forgive it. Somehow he gained the reputation as a lover of sinners, a reputation that his followers are in danger of losing today. Would any of us question that Jesus developed a reputation as a lover of sinners? And would any of us question that his people are in danger of losing that reputation today? Are we dispensers of grace? Maybe the first thing we need to do is put down our stones and testify to the forgiving and transforming power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and leave final condemnation and judgment in the hands of our God. Perhaps if you're like me, you need to hear all of it. You need to hear all of this. And so may God give us, by his spirit, ears to hear, hearts to receive and to believe, mouths to proclaim, and lives to display God's grace to the disgraced. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we do come before you thankful for your grace. 
Grace that has covered our shame for our sins, our spiritual adultery, our turning from your covenant love and faithfulness for the pardon of our guilt. That you have not condemned us by your grace. That you have rescued us. And Father, we pray that we would embrace your pardoning grace and that we would embrace your empowering grace. That we would live transformed lives and that through us, through us as your instruments being used by your spirit, your grace might be displayed to a world that needs the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.